There is truth. You can know it, live it, and be liberated by it. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher. Thank you for joining me on this podcast where we explore how the truth can set you free. All right, welcome back to the podcast. So glad that you're here. Today, I just wanted to spend a few minutes and talk to you about the concept of seeing what we see, what we don't see, and why that matters so much. It reminds me of the parable of the blind men and the elephant. This is a a story that comes from ancient India, from the Indian subcontinent. It was written into the scriptural books of many of the civilizations in the East. It's a moral parable, and it shows up earliest in a Buddha text dated around 500 BC and during the lifetime of the Buddha. So maybe it originated from the Buddha. I don't know. The parable is put forward in multiple ways in different texts. It's become popularized in the East, and there's lots of different ways to tell the story. But there's one very kind of simple, basic one that goes something like this. There are six blind men that are brought to examine an elephant that has come to their village. Now, sometimes this parable is told as these men are brought in order to try to um, teach them a lesson or to try to get them to agree on something or to try to draw on their wisdom. But the basic idea is that there's six blind men that they are all brought to this elephant, which of course they've been blind from birth. They've never seen an elephant. Elephant. They don't have a frame of reference for what an elephant is or how big it is or what it looks like or feels like at all. And so one man touches the trunk and says that the elephant is like a thick snake. Another man touches the tusk and says the elephant is like a spear. A third man touches the ear and says the elephant is like a fan. The fourth touches the leg and says the elephant is like a tree. The fifth touches the side and says the elephant is like a wall. And the last one touches the tail and says that the elephant is like a rope. Each of the blind men is convinced that he is right and that everyone else is wrong. And I like this kind of really simplified original telling of the story because these are all things that anciently anyone would have been familiar with. They would have had a frame of reference for things like fans or spears or snakes. Okay, now this parable has become popularized all throughout the world because it speaks to something really, really important in the human experience. It reflects a struggle that we all go through because it reminds us that there are multiple interpretations of something and that in many instances, most or all of the interpretations of an event, of a person, of an experience can be equally valid in a sense, equally true. These men are absolutely telling the truth as they perceive it. 
The problem is simply, as we all know, that their experience is limited to one section of the elephant. Now, in today's Western culture, we're embracing something called postmodernism. And postmodernism, the, the very fundamental idea behind postmodernism is that is, is this key idea that there's your truth and there's my truth and they're both equally valid. And language is a really faulty tool through which we try to kind of explain or demonstrate our experiences. Language can be weaponized and used to do harm or to distort the truth. And because of the nature of language and because our experiences are so varied and because any circumstance can have an unlimited number of interpretations, kind of like this elephant, then what postmodernism basically says is not only can we never arrive at, quote, the truth, there actually isn't the truth. There isn't something that is true for all of us all the time that we can latch on to and adhere to. And in this parable, we see that life can be very complicated and people can have similar experiences, but so varied and they can share what they believe to be the truth about it to such a degree that it can be extremely difficult to discover something that we could that 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 is objective about whatever the circumstance is but this parable reminds us of some really really important things and first of all these men are blind they can't see and they are having a real experience, a very powerful sense experience. They're touching, they're evaluating, they're thinking, they're trying their best to make sense of their limited experience. And they're communicating that to each other, but everybody else is telling them that they're wrong and that something else is the truth about this sense experience that they're all having. But what it's so important to remember is that even though they're good, honest men, and even though they're trying hard, and even though they're telling the truth as they see it, and they're not trying to deceive themselves or anybody else, there is a truth outside of all of their personal experiences. And the truth is the elephant. The nature of all the different parts that make up the elephant, the elephants, what it looks like, how it behaves, its true nature is a hard reality. And if you're not careful, that elephant can do you harm. But the elephant also has great ability to do you great good. The elephant's strength 
can be harnessed for so many good things. If it is accepted as the truth and seen for what it is, and that truth, that reality is harnessed properly. So what we want to remember, what we need to know is that even though we're all a bit blind, and even though we're all touching a different part of the elephant, because we haven't maybe seen the whole elephant yet or had the opportunity to understand it, there is still a reality called the elephant. And we still are at a disadvantage to the degree that we're ignorant of the true nature of the elephant. And we're definitely not harnessing its power properly if we don't understand its true nature. It, uh, it reminds me of the dwarfs at the end of the last battle. And I was going to read, I'm going to read you a couple pages from this book. It's something, uh, one of the many great resources that we use in the MDM Academy for understanding a myriad of principles. But the last battle is part of the Narnia series written by C.S. Lewis. And the dwarves are for the dwarves all throughout the story. And this book, this novel is a parable of the last days of the last battle and of the return of Christ. And so all of that has taken place. Uh, Aslan as the Christ figure has returned and the people have been liberated and a new earth has, is, is being generated and the people are free, finally free from the chains of um, evil and deception. But the dwarfs are for the dwarfs, and they are just as blind as the blind men groping around the elephant. Because all they care about is themselves, and because they refuse to believe what they could easily see right in front of them, they are completely blind. To the realities that are all around them and everybody else is experiencing this beautiful liberation they're seeing and meeting aslan and speaking with him and experiencing the joy of being with him they're looking forward to what happens next and the dwarves are stuck in the past they're stuck literally in this stable that they were placed in and they can't be released from it because of their willfulness and unwillingness to see. So Lucy leads the way and soon they could all see the dwarves. They had a very odd look. They weren't strolling about or enjoying themselves, although the cords which they, with which they had been tied seemed to have vanished, nor were they lying down and having a rest. They were sitting very close together in a little circle facing one another. They never looked round or took any notice of the humans till Lucy and Tyrion were almost near enough to touch them. Then the dwarves all cocked their necks as if they couldn't see anyone, but were listening hard and trying to guess by the sound what was happening. Look out, said one of them in a surly voice. Mind where you're going. Don't walk into our faces. All right, said Eustace indignantly. He's one of the humans that's there helping. We're not blind. We've got eyes in our heads. That's Eustace. They must be darn good ones if you can see in here, said the same dwarf whose name was Diggle. "'In where?' asked Edmund. 
Why, you bonehead in here, of course, said Diggle, in this pitch-black, pokey-smelly little hole of a stable. Are you blind, said Tyrion? He's the king that's with them, that's helped relief, uh, that's helped win the battle. Ain't we all blind in the dark, said Diggle? But it isn't dark, you poor stupid dwarves, said Lucy. Can't you see? Look up, look around. Can't you see the sky and the trees and the flowers? Can't you see me? How in the name of all humbug can I see what ain't there? And how can I see you any more than you can see me in this pitch darkness? But I can see you, said Lucy. I'll prove I can see you. You've got a pipe in your mouth. Anyone that knows the smell of backy could tell that, said Diggle. Oh, the poor things, this is dreadful, said Lucy. Then she had an idea. She stooped and picked up some wild violets. Listen, dwarf, she said, even if your eyes are wrong, perhaps your nose is all right. You can smell that? She leaned across the held she leaned across and held the fresh damp flowers to Diggle's ugly nose. But she had to jump back quickly in order to avoid a blow from his hard little fist. None of that, he shouted. How dare you? What do you mean by shoving a lot of filthy stable litter in my face? There was a thistle in it, too. It's like your sauce, and who are you, anyway? Earthman, said Tyrion. She is the Queen Lucy, sent hither by Aslan out of the deep past, and it is for her sake alone that I, Tyrion, your lawful king, do not cut all your heads from your shoulders, proved and twice proved traitors that you are. Because they wouldn't help in the battle. They were actually traitors. Well, if that doesn't beat everything, exclaimed Diggle, how can you go on talking all that rot? Your wonderful lion didn't come and help you, did he? Thought not, and now, even now, when you've been beaten and shoved into this black hole, just the same as the rest of us, you're still at your old game, starting a new lie, trying to make us believe we're none of us shut up and it ain't dark and heaven knows what. There is no black hole save in your own fancy, fool, cried Tyrion. Come out of it. And so they go on. Aslan shows up. He puts forth a feast for them. They dig in because they're starving, but it just tastes like straw. And the message over and over again in this whole section is that not only can they not see, but they refuse to see. Aslan finishes, you see, says As said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cutting cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. So the reason that I bring up this parable and this story and a couple of other things I want to share before we finish up is this idea that there is a hard objective reality and that as long as we individually or as a culture focus on victimhood, which is a very important theme in the MDM and MDT academies that you can find in the library, as long as we choose a vision of ourselves and of the world where we and others are victims and powerless, we cannot see that objective reality and harness its power. Because if you'll notice, if you'll look around, 
what you'll see is the loudest groups are shouting their victimhood. Whether it's the LGBTQ community or whether it's a focus on, you know, over a hundred, what, 150 years ago that there was slavery in this country and that, you know, the, the ancestors of certain people were slaves, which they definitely were. And other people of definitely of different races were taken advantage of or were treated poorly when they came to this country. I mean, if you look hard enough in your present or your past, there's always going to be a reason to have a paradigm that you're a victim. But that isn't the truth. The truth is always going to be that you're a creator that can overcome. And as long as we focus on only the bad things that there are to to see and to find, the bad things in our nation, the bad things in our neighbor, the, the bad things in our genealogy, the bad things in the world around us, and see ourselves as powerless victims, nothing will change. And if you'll look more closely at the world, you'll also see that those who maintain a victim mentality for themselves and other people and try to find purpose in life by um, thinking negatively and thinking in a victim mindset, they just don't get anywhere. It's kind of the difference. There's a really great a documentary, I think it's called Poverty Inc., that focuses on all of the nonprofits throughout the world who often, that often do more harm than good. They go in and they take over economies and they steal jobs from local people and they disempower them to change their circumstances and come out of the difficult circumstances that they're in versus concepts like microloans, which again is also not perfect, but is an attempt to empower the local people to be able to overcome them, their problems themselves. And so you wanna look really carefully at how you're managing the problems that you face, at what it is that you're seeing in yourself and in others, and how it is you're going about trying to champion. I mean, definitely there are really victims and definitely those victim, victims need aid. But how are we going about it? It's important to think about. Which brings us back to this theme of being able to see or to not see, to be blind, or to choose to look at reality. And, you know, it's like one of my favorite, oh, I think it's um, Schultz and Eatson says that the truth is almost invariably bitter because the truth requires us to be honest, to take responsibility, and usually to change ourselves. And as long as we want outside circumstances to change and other people to change, and and you'll notice in the woke movement and and in postmodernism and other ideologies that are are popular today, there's this um, forcing upon others. Other people have to change. Other people have to use different words. Other people have to um, treat us differently. Other people have to change their policies and their rules. Other people have to put on masks, whatever it is. The world has to change for you individually. And the world is usually not going to change for you. You have to change yourself. And the quickest way that you can do that is to see the reality of the natural moral law and to align yourself with it. I gave you a quote last week by Thomas Sowell about how traditionally, Until very recently, 
the, the mindset of most civilizations was we've got to get busy aligning ourselves with spiritual and eternal truths rather than trying to make the world conform to what makes us feel comfortable. And that means getting uncomfortable. I remember one time a woman made the comment to me that she would never want to move out of her neighborhood because she was so comfortable there surrounded by people who looked like her and believed like her. Well, that's, that's comfortable, but it's not necessarily going to help you see the other parts of the elephant or the bigger reality that you might not be able to see right now. And that doesn't mean we have to run off and live in foreign country. It just means that we need to open our eyes, unlike the dwarfs, and see the reality around us that it's there, that it's objective, that it's not going to change to conform to us, that it's bigger than we are, just like the elephant is, and that it offers us so much. The natural moral law offers us the opportunity to harness the realities of the world, um, the deeper truths that, that abide, and to use them to our benefit. There's a book that we read in the academy called Left to Tell, which is the true story of a woman who was hidden for three months during the Rwandan Holocaust. And she does nothing but sit in the bathroom and align herself with spiritual realities. And she finds within herself a power and a faith to overcome that makes her a leader to everyone around her when she's finally released. It is one of many, many evidences that I could parade before you and will in the months and years to come of the deeper things that are more real than the tactical um, sense-driven things of the material world that we interact with. One of the things I love that C.S. Lewis said was that the most real things that we can ever know are the things that are happening inside us. And one of the things that we know that's happening inside us is that there are certain shoulds we feel strongly about, that we have a conscience that speaks to us, that it encourages us to do things that are uncomfortable, that are that require discipline, that don't sound like any fun, but it is only through aligning our lives with that deeper reality inside ourselves, that conscience that's consistently speaking to us, that we earn certain intangible rewards, like a true um, inner confidence, uh, inner peace, and the ability to accomplish greater things than we could otherwise. So the law of human nature is like this whole elephant. It is the picture of reality that makes everything snap into place and make sense. It encompasses all the images we see, all the varieties of life experience and personal truth into a whole picture of the truth that when seen clearly and honored aligns our lives with reality so they work a whole heck of a lot better. It's like the American founding fathers. They hadn't arrived as a nation at the place where everyone was willing or able to see that slavery was a violation of the natural law, but many did see it. Many spoke against it even in their day, fought it, and eventually the true nature of things prevailed. The longer we're without slavery, the more truly and faithfully we see the nature of humanity. And I will, in a future podcast, talk about slavery as one of the ways in which we feel that we're morally superior. We're going to look at the true history of slavery 
and we're going to talk about what we can take credit for and what we can't take credit for and how the natural moral law is part of this progress within. I want to tell you one more story really quickly of learning to see, of aligning ourselves with the true realities and and how that liberates us. So this is the story of King Josiah in the Bible. And he had a wicked father. And unfortunately, he also had wicked sons. But he himself was a good man. And he didn't want to, you know, worship these Egyptian gods as so many of the Israelites were doing. He wanted to honor and obey the run true God. And he definitely tried, was trying to align himself with the the truths that he had access to in a corrupted civilization. You know, the Israelites had been given a lot of truth, much of which they chose eventually over time to ignore. And they wanted to be like the other societies around them. And so they corrupted the truths they'd been given. Well, Josiah took the first steps towards wanting to see by being willing to live up to the truth that he had. And that's always the first step we have to take in order to be able to see more clearly. And what this meant was he listened to his conscience and he rejected those things he knew to be fundamentally wrong. And he knew that in generations past, the temple had been important to the Israelites. And so one of his first actions was to have the temple restored, to have it cleaned up. And in following his conscience and attempting to see better, to see the whole of reality more truthfully, he took that action. He had that done. And as a consequence of taking that action, the book of the law was discovered in the temple, which had not been known to the people for generations and had not been read to them. And Josiah, I think he didn't even realize that it still existed. This is in about 640 BC. And because he was doing, it says, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. As he tried to live the truth that he had, he was given greater truth. This book of the law was discovered and he read it and recognized just how far away his nation had become from the truths that they had originally been so generously gifted by God. And so he sends and he gathers unto him all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. So he includes everyone. He brings them all into the perimeters of the temple, the most sacred, honored place that the Jewish people had. And it says that he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. So he wants to equate them with greater truth. Maybe there were bits and pieces of the truth that they had had prior that were still 
you know, existing in their civilization, kind of like the blind men with bits and pieces of information about the elephant. And then he reads the book of the law, the whole truth, the foundation of their civilization, of any true successful civilization is this moral law. Now there's the law of Moses, which had other things tacked on top of the moral law, obviously, but um, encompassed within that was a foundation of the nature of reality, a picture of the whole elephant. And that is what these, all of the Israelites were given was this true picture of the nature of things and a great leader who wanted to honor and harness the power of the elephant for the good of his people. And so the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people stood to the covenant. And so they start over. They clean up the groves. They get rid of the idols. They put to death people who don't want to comply with the reality that they've been shown. And they covenant to be a better people and they begin to thrive again. They begin to be blessed. I mean, we use the word blessed when we talk about these kinds of things, but really what's happening is that we are aligning ourselves with objective reality. And as we do that, life works better. It just works better. You follow the instructions of some kind of piece of technology in your home and guess what happens? It just works better. I mean, we keep not doing this in the middle of our remodel. We've gone through two vacuums because they keep using it for construction, not cleaning it out properly, not oiling it properly, not taking good enough care of it. And guess what? We keep blowing through these vacuums because we don't honor the way in which they're supposed to be handled and cared for. And we have a beneficent God who's created a world where there are certain laws that we intuitively know. We feel them in our hearts. The basic tenets of them are written on our hearts by the finger of God, as Thomas Reed said. And when we attempt to align ourselves with that reality, things improve, things get better. And this all-knowing, all-loving God will give us more truth as we strive to live the truth that we've been given. Now, as I'll talk about in future podcasts, there is this idea today, as I mentioned last time, that we are just eternally progressing and that we stand morally way ahead of people in the past. Now, to an extent, there's truth in that. Because one of the points that C.S. Lewis makes about the natural moral law or the law of nature is that progress can be made. In other words, human understanding of it and compliance with it can be improved, but that can only happen from within the natural law itself, not by denying it altogether and trying to set up an entirely new value system. Because it is the nature of reality, because it, like an elephant, just is it's our job to understand it and harness its power to a greater degree. And so that has been done in, in 
our attempts to eradicate slavery around the world. There still is slavery. We haven't eradicated it entirely, but over the, over the previous centuries, we have come to understand it as a human ill and to fight against it as not being aligned with the natural rights of all human beings, which is progress within the law. And I'll talk about the history of it and what all that means and why that is the case. And so we feel as we look back on past generations that assumed like Aristotle did that slavery was just part of the reality of, of the world. It's just the nature of things. We can see that that's not the case that we can create a civilization and a society where all people are free and it's better for everyone. So we are morally ahead of Aristotle in that particular thing. But why are we morally ahead? What caused us to be able to make that progress and make that change? It wasn't because we ignored and eradicated the natural moral law. It was because we so tightly embraced it that we saw more of it um, that we could build upon. So I'll talk about that in a future podcast, but I just want to give you this quote by C.S. Lewis. We'll probably hear it again in podcasts to come and articles that I'll release. But I, I want to just give you his words on what I just said about the importance of recognizing the natural law and harnessing its power by working within it to improve upon it. Okay, so he says, you know, the natural moral law is hard and fast. He calls it the Tao here to help people make the connection between this, this being a fundamental idea of the whole world, not just the West, that it's kind of like the Tao in the East. And he's saying, you know, it's hard and fast and it's our job to comply to it. And then he goes on to say, does this mean then that no progress in our perceptions of value can ever take place? That we are bound down forever to an unchanging code given once and for all? No, take the case of a great poet who has loved and been well nurtured in his mother tongue. He may make great alterations in it, but his changes of the language are made in the spirit of the language itself. He works from within. So if someone wasn't very acquainted with the English language and came in and tried to beat it all up and tell us all the things that were wrong with it, we wouldn't really care what they had to say. And frankly, their opinions would probably not be super valid. It's the greatest poet. It's the Shakespeare who makes up a new word that we enthusiastically embrace as an improvement upon our language because he speaks from within our language and he knows it even better than we do, which is why improvements to our understanding and compliance to the moral law have always been made by those who stand head and shoulders of us, ahead of us morally in our time, <clears throat> who see things that the average person don't see in the nuances of the natural moral law because they have complied with it so entirely. It's a completely different way of looking at it. So he goes on. In the same way, the Tao, the natural law, admits development from within. There is a difference between a real moral advance and a mere innovation. From the Confucian, do not do to others what you would not like them to do to you. To the Christian, do as you would be done by is a real advance. 
The first is an advance because no one, first it's an advance because no one who did not admit the validity of the old maxim could see reason for accepting the new one, and anyone who accepted the old would at once recognize the new as an extension of the same principle. You see, it's, it's better. It's better to do to others as you would want them to do to you than to just not do to others what you don't want them to do to you because then you're offering your charity in ways that are better for humanity. And so Confucius said something that both of these maxims are part of this natural moral law, but one is a little bit better than the other. One causes people to rise to the occasion more. It brings out the best in them. It advances their humanity. It advances their civilizations more, uh, more fully. It's, more, it's a better expression of what we intuitively know. And so this truth was intuitively known in the East and in the West as part of the natural law, but it has been improved upon by the Christian ethic. And then he goes on to make the same point that I made a moment ago, that only those who are practicing the Tao, the natural law, will understand it. And the more fully they're practicing it, the more fully they'll understand it and be able to help humanity advance within it. It is Paul the Pharisee from the, Old, from the New Testament, the man perfect as touching the law, who learns where and how that law was deficient. And so just like Paul in ancient times was able to embrace the new higher law as he understood it that Christ presented because he was attempting to live so perfectly a preliminary law to the new one. So hopefully these thoughts and ideas will get you thinking and pondering your relationship with the objective reality of the natural law, your understanding of why it's so important, and the concept of being able to see. Seeing is something that we can choose. We can open our eyes. We can accept, look at, take in the perspectives of others in an attempt to better understand truth and reality. And it begins by living up to what we know within ourselves to be the truth and to be honest with ourselves, which is tough but liberating, by living up to what we know we should be living up to first. So as we head into more of these concepts about the natural law, about civilization, and about progress within civilizations, I hope that this construction, this, these visuals of, of Josiah and his people and the dwarves in the stable and the blind men looking at the elephant will be images that you can keep in front of you and return to again and again to better understand these abstract concepts that are so incredibly empowering and liberating. Thank you so much for joining me. If you want to be part of our book club, please go ahead and grab a doll's house and start reading. Go subscribe to the library and you can talk to us about it in the community there. You can also find their master classes and 
study skills videos and other resources to help you. And in the weeks to come, we will be releasing more. Um, the MDM Academy will be available there in the future, as will the Mission Driven Teen Academy and other resources for you. So thanks so much for joining me today, and I will see you next time.